Once again, the Devin Townsend Podcast is presented by Inside Out Music. And this month's featured release, Charcoal Grace, the new album by Caligula's Horse. So get your charcoal ready for some serious grace. Consensually, of course. Yo, it's Devin. Here we are for the third interview for the Devin Townsend Podcast. And this month, I'm pleased to have been able to interview longtime acquaintance, Joe Satriani. Joe and I have spent time together in the past, but we've never worked together and we've never spent significant time hanging out and just talking. And having the opportunity to talk to him about his work today was inspiring in a lot of ways because I think he approaches things in a very uh, pragmatic yet very um, focused way. And I think in a world of people looking for quick answers and easy solutions, there's a lot to be learned from someone whose process seems to be based on going with the flow. So check it out. Joe Satriani. See you soon. Cool. How are you doing? How's your life? My life is very good. How's yours? Same. I mean, we went through a period of, of uh, renovation, and I'm sure you've been through that, man. Yeah. Oh, just crushing. It's just, uh, and I was saying to another buddy yesterday how you go from one frame of mind to trying to be creative and the whole capacity to uh, perceive music seems to have gone out the window and I had to relearn it. I think it's connected in some way, though. You know, you just, uh, I'm thinking back because the last interview we were talking about the G3 tour in 2018 and that period most of my memories are the fact that uh, Rabin and I had to cook all of our meals in this one small room upstairs because we <laughs> were having the kitchen, the eating area, dining room, laundry room all renovated. And for months, Dude. the place was torn apart. Everything yeah. was torn apart. And so it was just a little hot plate and coffee machine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's just... And that's when we really understood like how horrible it is when you have to eat out all the time when you're not on tour. I mean, when you're on tour, there's something about eating out that somehow works out okay, maybe because you're jumping around on stage every night. But when you're at home and you just you have to order out every day, it's really disgusting. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. You realize how much salt and fat is in everything that you don't cook on your own, right? As yeah, a treat, it's cool, though. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it was worth it though. I got to say, uh, it was, it was worth it because, uh, you know, houses fall apart and you got to fix them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all there is to it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or you move into one that's, that's already fallen apart and you have to make it livable, which was, uh, our experience. And, uh, they warned us prior to, they said, just so you know, have you ever lived in a reno? And I was like, no, naively thinking that it's just, ah, it's not a big deal, but yeah, man, that's a strain on every uh, facet of your relationship and your creativity. I find really, I find for me, it really changed. And I think in some ways it changed for the better because, you know, you've learned new things, but other ways you're just like, fuck, how do you even, how do you even start? But leading- well, I'll take one thing that, yeah. that, that it's stimulating for me mm. and it goes back to my childhood 
when I'm going to try to figure out how old was I? I was, uh, I don't think I was, uh, quite 10 yet. So somewhere between seven and 10 and my parents decided to put an addition onto the back of the house where there used to be an outdoor, uh, concrete patio in the backyard. They decided to make it a room. And so for a good part of a year, that part of the house was sort of closed off. But uh, in the evenings, when my father would come home from work, he would want to go take a, a look to see how the work was going, you know, and he'd take me along and I was fascinated with it. And the smell of the raw wood and the plaster and everything else that they used to build and just walking into a house that wasn't a house, you know, like a room that wasn't yet a room, it just totally blew me away. I absolutely loved it. And every time that we enter into some new construction project, whether it's a, you know, a small room or, or something big, as soon as I smell that smell, I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I love this. I could like live in a house under construction for the entire, my the rest <laughs> of my life. I just f- find it so stimulating. So it's never disrupted me from a creative standpoint. And I think it kind of pushes me a little bit because it reminds me of those great times. It's like a liminal space in a way. I mean, it, it's it's interesting because as I was preparing for this, uh, I was going through some of your paintings and going through some of the works that you had done and just trying to get a sense of, of your aesthetic viewpoint. And uh, I think the best way I'd love to start, if it's okay with you, is uh, the whole purpose of this podcast for me is to try and find ways through my own process in uh, sort of realizing who I've become and where I've landed at this age and all the experiences that have coagulated into this current frame of mind. And then you, since the beginning, are arguably uh, one of the most successful teachers of anybody. When I think back to when I first was familiar with your work, you know, the murmurings were, oh, here's a guitar teacher. He's taught all these, these people that ended up becoming very successful. But at the same time, the thing that I found intriguing about it is everybody that you taught had a unique voice. So it's not like there was a school of thought that you employed to teach people that ended up creating a group of people who were similar to yourself. Yeah. So with that in mind, the first question is, since the beginning, you've had a, a consistent aesthetic with your work. And it seems like that would imply that you knew yourself from a very young age. I may be right or I may be wrong about that. In terms of how you taught people, how do you draw out individuality within uh, a new student? Oh, wow. Um, well, first of all, you know, I, uh, my earliest memories as a kid was that my mother was a school teacher and she was a professional uh, grade school teacher her whole life. And she had an office downstairs in the basement. Uh, she, my mother was not a neat person. <laughs> she was a very creative, outgoing, uh, emotional person. Uh, and uh, But the desk, this is really an important part of it because her desk downstairs in the corner, I don't know why she wound up, well, because it was seven of us in the house. So the space was a big issue, but she had this desk and it was chaos. 
But from there, she figured out a way to inspire so many kids. And so as I was growing up, I would always meet all these kids that would say, your mother is amazing. She's just like so inspiring. She's just started my life, got me back on track and everything. And so one day as I was a teenager and I was playing guitar and I started to perform, uh, kids started to knock on my door looking for guitar lessons. And so my only model, since I hadn't taken guitar lessons, was my mother as a teacher. And I thought, so the first thing I did was I went downstairs in the basement and I looked around for stuff <laughs> and I found some paper and some stuff because I figured I'm going to have to write stuff down and I'm going to need pencils and, you know, I don't know what to do. So that was the first thing was sort of connecting with the fact that, well, I've seen her do it my whole life and... uh and, and then for a brief period, I think she even we were even in the same school. Uh, so I thought, okay, uh, then I'll just follow in her footsteps, inspire people, be kind, draw, find out what they're good at, amplify it, uh, supply them with information. And that was that was the key. There was no uh, ego involved. I never saw my mother try to change anybody's mind about anything. You know, her way of thinking. She always try to make somebody grow into themselves, you know? So now this is, I can say this to you in a, <laughs> as I realize, as I'm saying this, it sounds very intellectual and well thought out, but you realize that I was a 15 year old. So I wasn't thinking as organized like that, but I was just acting on impulse. And so, you know, one of the first students that I had was in fact, Steve, I, and it, it was exciting, but it was really simple. Two chairs, a little table, two kids with guitars. I had some graph paper and a pencil and I just started, you know, and, and, but I, the thing that I saw uh, my mother do was just love the, the classroom, love the kids, nurture the kids. And so that was the key in the very beginning, uh, you know, uh, and try, <laughs> I don't think I, th I don't even think I knew that word back then nurturing. But I know that's what I was pick, picking up on, that uh, I had uh, a history of being nurtured not only by my parents, but by my older siblings. So, it was, again, it was, it was like a natural thing for, for me to take that moment to be kind and see what this young kid's got. And I think that's the most important thing. You got to listen. You got to allow them to grow. They always surprise you. That's the way of the world. New people come along and they're amazing. And and hopefully they make the future a better place. It's interesting because when you're saying this, it implies to me that you've got an intuitive sense of intuition, which makes me uh, want to ask, how does that intuition that maybe allows you to see where the strengths of people are and then nurture that without a direct connection to your own ego, how does that play into your own work? So if you're creating with a group of musicians and the, and the uh, theme and everything you're working on is based on your own vision, how do you navigate that sense of nurturing and intuition when it comes down to getting what you want? <laughs> that is such a big question, right? That is the career question. In other words, that's like, how do you get along with people mm -hmm. <laughs> in a room? In 100%. Your 
100 percent. And the the reason I ask is because your track record proves to me of any people that I could ask, you would be first in line to be able to come up with an articulate answer. (laughs) You you know, you do have to uh, you have to let people express themselves. You have to accept their ideas and see it at not as a challenge, but an opportunity. Uh, I, I, there are so many moments in my life that should not have happened. And I took that attitude, like, I'm just going to do it to see what happens. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, there's a funny moment uh, when I started out uh, trying to be a solo artist. This is early January of uh, 88. I'm out there trying to figure out how to play rock guitar instrumentals on stage. I have no idea how to do it. But Surfing with the Alien is released and and we're getting some club dates. We're playing two shows a night. It's pretty rough. I'm still losing about 8000 a week. I have no idea how I'm going to pay for any of it. And I get a call from one of my managers and he's laughing and he's going, you're not going to believe this, but how would you like to audition for Mick Jagger? And we, we both just laughed, I think, for a minute because it's just the whole... The, like the the movie in our heads is just too funny. Me in a room with Mick Jagger thinking I'm going to be getting this gig, you know? So after we calmed down and we said, well, okay, it's never going to work out. However, if I do it, we'll have really good stories to tell <laughs> mm-hmm. about that day that I thought I could go to this audition, you know? So I said, yeah, well, of course, let's just do it. Let's just see what happens. I, you know, I kind of remember, I love the Rolling Stones. I used to know every song. I haven't played them in decades, but we'll, we'll see what happens, right? But anyway, long story short, I get the gig. And of course, it's, it blows our mind because it's it should never have happened. I'm definitely not the guy that should have gotten the gig. There were about 60 other guitar players they auditioned that were really well qualified. Why Mick decided I was the guy, I have no idea. But boy, did I have fun in that gig. And it changed me in a really great way because it allowed me to bring in so much music that I knew how to play over all the years of being a young guitar player that perhaps I thought I shouldn't be showing people because I was, you know, really focused on like, how do you walk on stage and play Surfing with the Alien and Always With Me, Always With You? How do you how do you do a show where there's no singing, but it's rock and roll? Mm-hmm. I hadn't figured that out yet. And I think maybe my attitude was to be less, to show people less, uh, but a more, uh, a more concentrated, concentrated version of less of who I was when I realized it was the opposite was the right way to do it. It was to show everybody more of what I, I, who I was. Hmm. And this, and I learned this, you know, just like hanging out with Mick and saying, uh, do you want me to play like Ronnie here and and <laughs> and Keith like here? And he and he was like, no, 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 no. Just get into the song and be yourself. Just mm-hmm. go out there and be yourself. Every night, just try something else. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. What a great piece of advice. Again, you you walk into a gig like that, huge stage was like a quarter of a mile long from one end to the other. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, I used to play with like, I think an eight foot cord. Now I'm wireless and I'm running around like an idiot, you know, <laughs> waving half the time. Uh, but it, it did, uh, it, it taught me about accepting those crazy moments in life that don't seem to make sense to allowing these things to, to see them as opportunities 
to expand and they're not challenges to your world. They're not when, you know, when you're on, let's say at a G3 rehearsal and someone says, you know, maybe it'd be better if I did the solo first and I stood over here and, and without saying like, well, that's going to make me look smaller or something like that. You go, well, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. Go with it. You know, that seems to be a foundation of your work in hearing you speak is it's like not even just going with the flow, but just uh, a sense of inquisitiveness that comes with what's the worst that could happen in a sense. <laughs> you know, it's, it also makes me think like uh, that the first time we got together with Chickenfoot, we're in a where we got together for like two days. Right. We're in Sam's studio, a small pressure cooker like room. And I had sent like, I don't know, 12 demos to everybody. And they're just listening to them on their emails. And they're like, oh, Joe, that song's cool. Let's do that song now. Okay. And then, and meanwhile, I'm going like, well, you know, that song's got six guitar parts. And and, and they're all like, yeah, well, you just, you know, you just do the, just do whatever, do the part. And, you know, an hour later, we've recorded it. No click, live, you know. Everyone's looking at each other like, well, you know, you're the drummer, you're the bass player, you, you just do your part and let's get this record done, you know? Mm. And and those moments, that's where you really got to, you can't stop the session and say, no, I need six takes to do six tracks <laughs> the way I originally thought about it. You just have to forget about it and go, I can't believe I'm in a room with these guys. This is amazing. Like, I am going to, like, what have I been practicing for since I've been four, 14 it's like this moment, like grow, damn it, you know, <laughs> become. I think, I think that's brilliant, man. I think that's something that, that people could really learn from. And I'm going to ask you how that plays into improv, because I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and I realized halfway through the conversation, I was thinking about what I was saying to him. And then all of a sudden my words dried up. It's like, it's like this self-awareness that comes with uh, feeling insecure or what have you. But it seems like what you've described with all these stories so far is that the foundation of your work, and it probably plays into your improvisational skills, is to be able to just put yourself aside and then just go with the flow. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, the first time uh, I learned, the, the, well, I'm not going to say I learned it. The first time I was exposed to the challenge to the lesson was from Lenny Tristano. Now, Lenny, father of cool jazz, just brilliant jazz musician uh, from the last century. Uh, just by accident, I wound up taking a few lessons from this guy. Uh, one of the biggest lessons he taught me was this whole thing about the subjunctive. He he went on a rant one day uh, because I, I said, I used the word, should or could in my explanation of my improv, right? And he really went off on me and he said, you know, the kids from the suburbs have a disease called the subjunctive disease, which is they always worry about what they should have played, what they would have played, what they could have played, and they never play what they want to play. So fucking play what you want to play. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was a 17, 18 year old kid and I was like, whoa, like, how do you do that? You know? And he says, well, the way you do that is you you learn like, damn it, like, learn it, like, learn every note, learn every scale, learn every chord, and don't play anything, you know, don't judge yourself while you're playing. That's the only way to do it is learn everything completely. Uh, and, and then just be the music, just be there. And, and don't think about it. 
And of course, that's like a Zen lesson. You never stop working on that. Every time you walk on stage, you know you're going to be thinking about how your shoes look and are your strings in tune and whatever. <laughs> how you're holding your special pick. <laughs> all, all kinds of stuff go through your head. But that lesson, I, I take to heart every single time I play. Just don't be judgmental. Just let it happen. It's so hard. I'm not even close to getting to where Lenny had suggested, but that's that's the thing. You just as as you describe, as soon as you start listening to yourself and being judgmental, then forget it. The game is lost, you know. Theoretically, that makes perfect sense to me on a technical level, you know, specifically if you are inclined to learn your modes and your scales and alternate picking and all these things, or whatever your instrument is, or whether whatever your whatever your vocation is. But on a personal level, I think it doesn't exist without that same effort going into your own psychology. Like, how do you get past to be an effective improviser, your own trip, your own insecurities, your your own concern about, hey, I got picked on because my sneakers weren't the right one in grade seven. So now I'm hyper aware of my stupid fucking shoes while I'm trying to play this riff or whatever. Do you have any tips or do you have any suggestions to people how to do it on a personal level no no i'm t i uh, i don't like uh, giving advice <laughs> how come <laughs> I, because it's just it's i always think like advice is inherently skewered it's inherently wrong because someone has to think about it organize it and once they start doing that then it's calculated to make them look good the advice giver you know it's not really heart to heart it's all it's actions are the are the thing it's it's you know you know when the whole self-help kind of a thing and it, it to me it just doesn't ring true i'm just i'm a skeptic of course you know i'm that's my problem <laughs> In, uh, can you describe can you describe skepticism well i don't i don't believe anything that People tell me, I suppose that's what it is. It's like I immediately go, well, let me think about that for a second, you know. That got me in trouble when I was in Catholic school and I had to get sent to a public school because I just caused too much trouble. And uh, but um, and it just it led me along that way uh, where I questioned everything, authority and everything else. And I've learned to dial it back so that I could stay out of prison and <laughs> and and trouble, uh, but that my I, my embracing of contrarian thought, I suppose, is not always enjoyed by other people. So, um, but I I notice that as soon as I if people start giving advice, I just it's, I just rubs me the wrong way. And I feel bad if it's coming out of my mouth, you know, if I tell people what you should do is blah, 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 you know, but cause it's history does not prove that out. And I'm not talking about, you know, you know, you know, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't drink. These are the obvious things, you know, eat well, get plenty of sleep, all that kind of stuff. We're not talking about that. We're talking about these other subjects about how, you know, it, it's, it's like when a student comes in and, and really what they're saying is, I want to become famous and rich and popular, solve my problem. That was one of the things that used to drive me crazy about teaching was that I love the idea of getting musicians to their best possible place 
what I found very draining was the emotional um, hit I would take being in a room with someone who had all these issues and all these hopes and desires that I couldn't possibly solve for them, but they were looking to me to, to do that. And I still get that. People say, how can I succeed? I want to succeed. I want to do what you do or something like that. And um, the only thing I can say to them that doesn't make me cringe is I would say that I want to hear your story. And I think everybody else does because I'm just like everybody else. I don't want to tell an artist what to do or what to write, but I want to be surprised and I, and I want to be surprised about the truth and the honesty in it. And I want it to uh, stop me in my tracks and make me think when I hear this music. So whatever it is that you're doing, if you're not doing that, then I won't be interested. So that's my advice. It's, it's, it's very impractical because what they really want to know is, should I use this pick? <laughs> what string should I use to become popular? You know, I, I would argue it's probably <laughs> the most practical advice someone can give and your track record shows that. So how do you extend that to your own work? So you don't want to tell somebody what to do. Of course, it makes perfect sense. Contrarian. I get it, dude, like a million percent. So all of a sudden you've hired somebody to play an arrangement that you've written that has to be a certain way. So is oh, it a, right there is that's where I never think of it like that. I awesome. rarely force people to do that. And How would you do it? How would you tell somebody, do you just jam with them? Uh, in the past? Yeah. We would be together in a room and we'd work on things. Yeah. Um, here's a perfect example of just letting go. Right. So uh, I can give you two examples really quick. Uh, again, a chicken foot thing. We're in the studio. We're at Skywalker, uh, Chad, and Mike, and Sammy and I, and we're working on a song I, I had written um, that Sammy immediately wrote lyrics to called Turn and Left. And I'd written in the key of D, and it was a really fun riff for me and Mike to play together. And it's kind of like had a, a bit of a stretch, but in the key of D, it was really, it was like butter, you know? So we start playing it, and it's like, I don't know, Maybe it's around noon or something like that. And we're getting it together. The arrangement is pretty cool. And Andy John says, that sounds great. All right, let's try it in C sharp. And we're like, okay. So, you know, Mike and I move it down a fret and we're playing in C sharp. And then it's, oh, got to change the snare drum now that it's in C sharp. And they, Okay, so an, an hour goes by and Andy's like, that's really great. All right, I just see, let's do it in C. And we're like, you realize that this riff is like this, you know, and it's getting really hard and it's, you know, he goes, yeah, yeah, but I really think it sounds great in C. So we do in C. So it's getting close to dinner time, right? And we've done every other, you know, we're only doing like maybe a couple of takes. It's not like we're, we're playing solid, but still it's a long song. It's got these live solos. There's no click track. It's very intense. It's like doing a show, you know, and Andy finally says, you know, we got to drop it. I think B is going to be the key. That is really the key. And we're like, damn, you know, mm. it's like now this thing really hurts, you know. And so we finally get this this take. It's like one last take because Mike and I can't play this thing anymore. It's just too, 
too weird. But that's the take that's that's on the album. And it's and one of the things that uh, Andy did, uh, I'm talking about Andy Johns, the engineer producer, right for the, the last take, he goes, I know, I know, I'm just looking for something. He comes out and, and the Skywalker room is huge. You know, it can hold like 200 piece orchestra. And we're kind of in the middle back section and the, the back of the room has got three ISO booths and my, my cabinets are in the back ISO booth. He opens to do- the door to the, to the back of ISO booth and he goes, I think I want your guitar to kind of like fill the room and just get on all the room mics and everything. So at this point, my headphone mix is like blown out because I'm, I'm near the door. I can barely hear Chad is the loudest drummer in the world. He's driving me deaf. You know, <laughs> we do this one take and I'm thinking, I hope this is the last one. Cause my fingers are dying, but you know, there's live vocals going on, you know? And, and so we we all know that this is important. You know, this is like a real thing. Cause we see each other going right to our limit. You know what I mean? And that's a, that's a, that's like when you're playing a team sport and you can see everyone on your team is trying their absolute best all the time. So it makes you want to do your best as well. So we got that take and that's the take that's, that's on the album. And that's a good example of, of not protesting and saying, yeah, this is a challenge, but I'm just going to go with it. And everyone looked at each other for encouragement to not complain. You know, mm-hmm. after we would complain a little bit about stretching because we kept dropping the key, uh, it, it was still something that we found fun that we were, that we were being challenged. Now, the flip side of that is I've been working on these two tracks with Steve for this upcoming tour we're doing. And because we've had to do it remotely, I recorded everything uh, here in this room and I sent it off to Eric Kodia, uh, who's our producer. And I said, you're going to have to do the drums and the bass somewhere because Steve and I are too busy to get together. And uh, so he's got, uh, luckily we were, we were able to get Matt Bissonette to play bass and Matt Chamberlain to play drums. And there was a, a few moments in where I had to get on the phone and say, you know, that's not the riff. <laughs> and we, we just have to like, let's see if we can take two steps back and get back to the original riff. So I'm not going to say that I'm, you know, everything goes. I'm, uh, I will admit there are times where you have to be the leader, the band leader and remind people like you've gone too far. Now it doesn't sound like this particular song. So mm-hmm. I think that's okay for the composer to insist upon now and then. Yeah, that's, I guess that's the workload, isn't it? <laughs> I got one more question for you, then I can let you go, man. Um, so in hearing what you're saying, it's exactly what I was hoping to hear from you, because uh, you've inspired a generation of us in ways that seems kind of ephemeral in a way. You know, it's like, well, how has that happened? And it's not necessarily looking for answers, but just intrigued, because so many people can't teach other people. And it's interesting to see that the process is essentially go with the flow. I'm not going to tell you what to do. And where are you? And let's see if we can inspire that out of this desk full of chaos in a sense. And it's funny that when I hear that, I think about, okay, so when I've thought about your work over the years, there's such strong themes. A lot of it's aliens, like with the, uh, with the painting, with the guitars, with album titles, but each one of your albums has a very specific theme. So the last thing I'd like to ask you is how do themes uh, play into your process? Do, are you inspired by a certain thing that then you write towards, or is it just something you do at the end? Um, 
I, I could, when I look back at the last number of records, um, I think there are two things happening at once. I'm continually writing and without a theme and alongside of it, I'm developing a theme um, as if it were a, uh, a flagship song, let's say, that every other song is going to fall in behind. Um, but it may not have a, a sound to it. <laughs> so, and then at some point I start to realize I, that I've been, that out of this bunch of songs I've been writing, that there's, there's a group of them that really do fit with this theme that has been running alongside this compositional output and they start to come together. And so like with the elephants of Mars, that, um, well, the last two records were very much like that, where um, I had written a lot of material, and the, but I, inside I also felt I wanted some, I wanted a theme that was going to accept what I was writing. So for shape shifting, I realized that uh, the the material that I was writing was really me get stepping outside of myself and becoming something else for this for this song and then this song and then this song. And once I realized that that's what it was and I, and then it got me to write the title track, I thought now that I have this theme, I can put the title track on the album. I can do a song like 1980, you know, it's retro tribute song. And I can also do a song like yesterday's yesterday and get them all on the album. So, you know, so I've got, you know, I've got some funny, songs that coexist together on the same album but this title of shapeshifting of me being the changeling is what's accepting all this stuff and it gives us uh, artistic license in the studio when you walk into a studio like i walked into jim scott's studio and i said this album is called shapeshifting so everyone just play whatever you think is perfect for each song don't worry about you know, song to song to song, like maintaining your sound or your, your, your vibe for song to song. You can change like I'm, you're going to hear my guitar playing change a lot. You know, I'm going to be whistling on this song for Christ's sake. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's going to be fun and we're going to have fun with it. And uh, Elephants of Mars was different because we had to do it remotely. Um, but once I, I let everybody know what was happening, it got everyone in this more expansive mood to again to allow themselves to be a little crazier perhaps than uh, what they thought they were going to be asked to do on a Joe Satriani record, you know, it's uh, like subconscious orchestration, man. It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's like I love that process. I think that's amazing. Does it? How does it differ uh, to painting? Does it? I, I you know um, I have far more technical background as a musician than I do, uh, as a painter. Um, so I can't direct myself as a painter as much as I can as a musician. Um, and Is that freeing in a sense. I, I don't know. I think I get just as upset 
<laughs> myself when I play something wrong as when I paint something wrong. And uh, I mean, Rabina would tell you that, yeah, she's had to leave the room several times because I just get beside myself and she can't figure out why, you know. But that's typical, right? You're in the studio, you play something and you go, I suck. And your friend said, that that's the best thing I've heard all day. <laughs> and you can't hear it. And it's the same thing with me with painting. I'll, yeah, I have a vision and if I don't get to it, then no one can convince me that the painting should be left alone. I just have to change it. <laughs> I've destroyed and rebuilt many times. I love it. I but love I, it. I love the physical representation, you know, going back maybe eight years when I finally got back into being like a kid and getting my fingers dirty with paint, you know, like when I was in kindergarten or something that that was a great reconnection to what I liked about artwork in general was just the physicality of it. Um, guitar playing has always hurt for me. Um, but painting doesn't, which is great. It's messy. <laughs> I don't have to clean up afterwards. I mean, as a guitar player, you never clean up afterwards. You just put it in the case, right? It's just, but the artwork is messy. You got to clean up. That's so yeah. that's, that's the weird thing about it. But at least it doesn't hurt. And guitar playing has always hurt. My fingers hurt. My joints hurt. I get stiff neck. I can't I can't play the way I want to play. It's very annoying. Uh, and so there's a lot of mind over matter that has to happen uh, when I'm playing guitar. And uh, but but less so with painting. Um, but I'm just starting out with painting, so I'm, I'm still working on my technique. <laughs> <laughs> well, through the years, man, it's like I've been fortunate to spend some time with you over the years. And every time, just because, you know, when I was a kid and I was first listening to uh, Not of This Earth, and I remember I was on I was on a, a family vacation and I had bought myself a little Yamaha REX50. And I was so psyched to have like my first effects unit. And those records were the soundtrack to that. And then when surfing came out, everybody... Everybody loved it, and it's just the, the 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 tales of this guy that taught you know, the guy from Primus and the guy from Metallica and Vi and all these cats. It just seems in talking to you now, uh, I love how clear it is. You're like, yeah, no, I didn't tell him what to do. Yeah. I didn't tell him what to do. And I think moving forward for anybody who's in the midst of making their own creative. Uh, work, whether or not it's painting or, or what have you, is if you can have a solid sense of, of who you are and what you like and what you don't like, and you're able to just go with the flow in a way that seems to be imbued with this sense of uh, wonder. You're just like when you're saying with you're out with Mick Jagger, you're like, how the hell did this happen? <laughs> yeah. As, you know, I think that maybe there's a big lesson for all of us from that. Brother, you've always been so humble in our meetings together. And I remember thinking when I first met you, it's like, how is this guy so fucking humble? This doesn't make sense. You know, you should, you should have the biggest ego in the room yet. Uh, you've always been very kind and everybody I know has said the same thing. So from the bottom of my heart and from the musicians community, my friend, it's uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to talk to you. Yeah, man. You are a genius, by the way. And one of these days, I'll get to interview you. <laughs> I love it. How you do it? <laughs> I love it, man. I'm. I'm. I. Uh, I think, in a nutshell, um, uh, most of it was fueled by insecurity and fear. And then when that started to manifest as like confidence on some level, I realized that the amount of work that I needed to do was just like becoming okay with 
what my vision was. And then once that started to become clear, it became healthy. And as it becomes healthy, I feel that, you know, I, uh, it has, it has gone off in other directions. Like, oh, I'm so grateful for my family. I'm so grateful for my, the fact that my limbs work. I'm so grateful for my friends and the ability to do this. And then the, the work is now, uh, in its purest sense, just a expression of gratitude, you know? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. For real. Because like you dude, I, I, I struggle when people tell me what to do. I'm like, my wife always said, if she wants me to do something, she asks me to do the opposite, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, and, and for example, people for years have been like, you have to watch Breaking Bad. And I'm like, well, I'm never going to fucking watch it then <laughs> ever. Okay. Well, you should see the wire. Yep. Never watching that either. Right. So yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it's it's a it's a pleasure. I remember uh, all the moments that we've had a chance to to spend some time, and I got a lot of love for you and your work. And thank you for for uh, allowing me to ask you about the process, man. It it means a great deal. My pleasure, Devin. My pleasure. Okay, we'll talk to you soon, brother. Okay. <laughs> Good luck on the tour. <laughs> thank Cheers. you. Bye bye. See you out there. Bye bye. The tools that make this podcast possible provided by Roswell Microphones and X5.